Hey, welcome to the Seattle Psychiatrist Interview Series. This educational series is brought to you by Seattle Anxiety Specialists. Located in downtown Seattle, our psychiatrists and therapists specialize in treating anxiety, anxiety disorders, and other mental health issues that commonly lead to anxiety. For a full list of our services, as well as access to our multitude of online resources, check us out online at seattleanxiety.com. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I'm Dr. Jennifer Gahari, Research Director at Seattle Anxiety Specialists. I'd like to welcome with us licensed psychotherapist, Sari Cooper. She is an ASECT certified sex therapist and both supervisor and director of the Center for Love and Sex in New York City. Sari has been in practice for over 25 years and is highly sought after expert on relationships, sexuality, and sex education in the media. She's also the founder of Sex Esteem, LLC, a company providing coaching, talks to adults, parents, and organizations to empower folks to get more embodied and informed. Before we get started, can you please let our listeners know a little bit more about yourself and what made you interested in specializing in relationship issues? Well, I came out from... um the performing arts world. I was a a modern dancer. That's what brought me to New York City. Um, I danced professionally after graduating from the Juilliard School. So I was very much an embodied person in my first career. And then I started reading uh, family therapy books and watching some family systems videos by some of the pioneers. And I just thought as a second career, this was something I could bring a lot of my own talents to both from an embodied sense and also reading nonverbal communication. Um, So I was really, uh, I fell in love with couples and family therapy. And in order to attend the Ackerman Institute, which is one of the oldest family therapy institutes in the the country, uh, I had to go and get a master's degree in social work. Um, and then that was sort of the beginning of this long uh, sort of journey. And then once I started doing a lot of couples therapy, I realized that I didn't have what I really needed in terms of education around sexuality and sex therapy, because there are some uh, biological, medical, um, predetermined kind of conditions that affect sexuality, not just the psychological ones and social ones. Right. You've written an article this year titled Seven Critical Talks to Have Before Your Wedding Day. And the pandemic has clearly put a hold on many people's plans over the past few years. In your article, you mentioned that 2022 is supposed to have a 15% increase in weddings this year compared to 2021. Since we're in the height of wedding season right now, can you explain the seven critical talks that couples should have? I will. I I actually printed it. So (laughs) had it in front of me. Um, You know, after years of working with couples, uh, I see all the sort of holes in Mm -hmm. uh, their agreements or nonverbal agreements or implicit versus explicit agreements. And I really felt like to help people before they get going on their marital and, you know, marriage journeys, uh, Mm -hmm. they should have they should have these really important talks. So the first one is about creating boundaries with your family of origin. And a lot of people find this 
very this tension and anxiety early on when they're planning their weddings because that's when these two families actually get to meet each other mm-hmm. you know in person but also the loyalties and rituals and uh, sort of things that you would take for granted uh, actually become challenges for this new couple. And I always say to couples, you're creating a new family, even if you don't have children yet uh, or ever, you are a family and you have to each be an emissary to your families of origin in order to figure out for yourselves what this, your new family entity is going to do in terms of your values, in terms of your priorities. And so a lot of times couples, partners feel tons of pressure from their families of origin. Mm. It shows up like full force around wedding plans. So this is a great time to start discussing with each other. How do we feel about this? And then going back and saying to our families, you know, of origin, here's what we decided to do. It may be different from what your expectations are, but this is kind of, we've agreed that this is the way we'd like to do it. Um, The other one that is, I've always found somewhat surprising is uh, the discussion around having children. Mm. A lot of partners go forward into marriage uh, with an unclear vision in terms of the priority and value of whether or not they're going to have children. And that's really critical because if you have one partner who definitely has always wanted to have children, there's sort of a research, uh, you know, there's been research done about people who are early deciders about having children and late deciders and, you know, and the other partner saying, well, I'm not sure I have to decide later. I mean, this is like a, you know, a really important sort of distinguishing line and boundary. And so I always encourage people to talk about what that would look like, whether it's biological, biological children, whether it's adopting, you know, I, all of these issues I think are really important. Uh, And yes, people do change their minds later. Maybe you have two partners who agree they don't want to bring children in the world for a variety of reasons. A lot of young people are saying, you know, climate change is a reason. Uh, And they may change their mind later on. But I think that it's important to talk about it right now before you go down the aisle. Um, One of the other things is uh, it takes a village. And I, you know, I've seen so many couples through the pandemic who have been so isolated from family and are going it alone and raising children and, you know, working. Um, And I really think that whether or not you have ties with your sort of blood family, your blood, or you you need to create a chosen family around you to help in terms of supporting your marriage, in terms of supporting your, your family. If you, you know, once you have, if you have children, I, I, I just think it's, it's hard to expect everything from one person. Right. And so are you referring to maybe bringing in friends or uh, maybe spiritual leaders? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I, I think that we all have different parts of us mm-hmm. and our partners can be there and complement a lot of different angles of who we are, but, mm-hmm. but not all. And so whether it's a spiritual or religious leader, whether it's just friends, whether it's uh, people you decide to do, you know, monthly brunches with that really speak to some parts of you that maybe your partner doesn't get. uh, I think it's, it's important. Otherwise one can feel like uh, the marriage itself 
gets too weighed down with expectations. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, another one is infidelity and fidelity, which, so I see a lot of couples after some sort of infidelity has been discovered. Mm. And I think that a lot of times there's, while well, someone might say, well, that's clearly infidelity if someone had, you know, penetrative mm-hmm. sex, there are so many other sexual behaviors that one partner may consider uh, being cheating or unfaithful that the other partner doesn't. Mm-hmm. They never discuss it. Yeah. Can you give some examples what those might be? Yeah. So um, people have come in saying, well, my partner said that he used pornography before we got married, but that he would stop using once we got married. And that partner didn't stop using pornography or watching it or sexually explicit media, as we call it. Um, Or someone might uh, go to a strip club, right? And they don't consider that being unfaithful because they're not actually physically encountering anybody. Uh, they're not having kisses or even touching anybody, uh, but their partner may consider that um, cheating um, or against their values, you know. Sure. Uh, so those are things, that, you know, there are so many um, more nuanced things, whether it's flirting, whether it's an emotional relationship that you have with someone either in person or online that you're sh- kind of sharing very intimate details, not only about the- yourself, but maybe about your marriage and your partner. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's t- sort of the partner feels like it's taking away from the intimacy you're sharing with, with them. Um, and so that's where this, you know, terminology of emotional cheating came into being. Yeah. And I would imagine too, with the prevalence of social media and just the ways that you can interact with people, maybe this type of perceived infidelity is rising too, correct? Right. So there are so many ways you can have a whole sexting relationship with someone, never uh-huh. even meet them in person. Um, and yet it's quite sexual and erotic uh-huh. in nature. Um, and you're doing it with someone outside your uh, supposedly monogamous agreement with your partner. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Okay. Right. And, you know, and another one was um, telling your partner you appreciate them. I think one of the uh-huh. most long-standing complaint yeah. that people have with one another after sort of the the first two years of being in love and mm-hmm. uh, having that kind of what we call limerence period is mm-hmm. that we take people for granted and we don't say thank you for even doing small things right. or paying them compliments uh just did a lot of research around couples and over you know many, many decades now, uh, mm-hmm. came up with this ratio of a five to one ratio, meaning five compliments or five positive statements to each sort of request for change. Oh, And pretty most fair. people don't have a hard time doing that five. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other one is to discuss religious and spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, a lot of studies have shown that they're, uh, those people who say they practice some sort of religion um, has been decreasing and people attending places of worship, research and census and surveys have shown us that people are going less and less often to 
institutions, uh, but they may define themselves as spiritual. Right. And so I think going forward, it's important to sort of distinguish for yourself what you're feeling in terms of religion or spirituality. Mm. And it may require some sort of compromise on how you're going to honor that spirituality, mm. honor your community. If you come from a more religiously attuned um, community or family um, mm. ahead of time and not sort of say, oh, we'll figure it out as we go along. Uh, because a lot of people can get into a lot of battles around that. Wow. And I think we covered all seven, correct? I think I did. Okay, awesome. Uh, in terms of when people should talk about these things, I would imagine it, it shouldn't be the week before they actually get married, right? Is there an approximate time that is really ideal to kind of hash all of these things out? I think depending on how serious it is, um, I would say for some things like children, mm. where you're going to live, uh, religious, religious practice, things like that. Um, yeah. I would say, you know, 10 months ahead. Wow. Okay. Or a year. I mean, I've had people come to me, you know, like three to four months before their wedding vows uh, mm. with really serious uh, discordant issues uh, mm. that they're trying to solve right before they get married, uh, including trauma, right? Where one partner has had um, background, you know, of trauma and may not have even revealed it to their partner. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like maybe even aiming for a year or longer to have all these important discussions. Because when you're getting married, it's stressful enough. You don't need to have all of these other issues on top of it. So, and just you know, start out the gate running strong. Yeah, exactly. Well, you think about it, a lot of people get engaged and leave a year at least to plan their nuptials, right? Well, yeah. why not give a year to like uh, really iron out some of these differences? So, you mm -hmm. know, you're going mm -hmm. in fully, fully cognizant and fully confident that uh, you're, you're on the same page. Even if you've compromised, it's still, you're on the same page. Okay. That's great. Thank you. And it seems one positive thing that's maybe come from the pandemic is that our people are reevaluating their lives and what matters to them. In your article, you mentioned that couples feel less pressure to participate in religious or conventional wedding traditions that really aren't meaningful to them. Can you discuss that a bit? What types of shifts are you seeing? I've seen people who uh, elope, oh. who say, you know, I feel strongly about this person. I don't need a huge party. I don't have to wait uh, for COVID to sort of recede. Um, I just wanna move on with my life uh, mm. and take the next step. So that's one thing I've seen. Another I've seen um, is not having a religious leader or you know, um, clergy conduct the ceremony itself. who gets sort of uh, certified by uh, online um, as a life minister. I don't know what they're called uh, because they find it actually more personal. Uh, someone who's known them, someone who maybe he had even introduced them. Uh, yeah. Um, other sort of rituals where you think that a parent will 
um, escort their kid down the aisle, um, mm-hmm. their adult child, I should say, um, uh, they, they walk by themselves mm-hmm. because they feel they've come a long way. They're an independent adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not being given away. I mean, there's that sort of right. feminist slant to it. You're, they're not being given. They're walking into a relationship they've chosen. It's, a, it's sort of like of their own agency. Um, so things like that, that are, you know, you, you don't see as often in the movies, right? These are new ways of um, coupling. That's great. It's, it's really nice to hear that people are making it what they want to be and truly encompassing themselves in the relationship as part of this ceremony. It's great. Yeah. Um, getting back to, unfortunately, infidelity, uh, we had touched upon before. You've uh, written an article about that as well this year. And you mentioned that 25% of committed monogamous couples experience some degree of infidelity at some point in their relationship. Um, what are the typical causes of infidelity? And is there any way that people can lessen the likelihood of it happening to them in their relationship? I think that, you know, going back to what I was saying, I think talking about potential things that are going to, you know, tempt you, mm-hmm. what, what embodied experiences might make you feel uh, abandoned, uh, anxious, resentful, right, that might lead you or tempt just on how you're going to protect your monogamous agreement. And one of the other things I I, I didn't mention before, which is really important in terms of critical talks, is Mm -hmm. um, erotic interests. So frequently partners go into marriage without necessarily sharing all of the things that they're sexually into. And they end up in our offices because Mm -hmm. they feel very ashamed about them. They feel uh, scared of losing their partner if they came forward and said, you know, I'm really into X behavior, you know, right. I'm really a, a very kinky person and I know you're much more vanilla. Um, how are we going to negotiate that? Uh, and it's due to shame, right? You know, most people, when we do our sexual histories with them, uh, their parents didn't talk to them about sex. They didn't talk about give them, you know, really good books or resources to learn the real facts. And so many young people now are being brought up um, seeing these sexually explicit entertainment videos and thinking that's real sex, right? Yeah. That's entertainment for some people, not for everybody, but uh, it's not what really goes on between two partners uh, who are more open and loving and interested in pleasuring one another. So I think that forging those, comp, uh, you know, consistently, not just at the beginning, but having ongoing conversations where you check in with each other quarterly and say, how are we doing? How, you know, have you been happy with the kind of sexual, you know, engagement we've had? Uh, you know, is there something that you've been interested in exploring that we haven't? Uh, what would that entail? Um, very, but very neutrally, um, because what happens sometimes is sometimes one partner will float some sort of idea, maybe they saw it in a movie mm-hmm. and then they see their partner's reaction. 
tone of disgust shuts down that conversation right away. And so one of the things, you know, we tell our partners is if we're going to open up this conversation, here are the rules of the road. You can't be critical of what you're hearing. You can't, uh, you know, make someone feel more shame than they might already feel. Uh, about something that, you know, a lot of, it's a huge diversity of interests out there in terms of erotic and sexual interests. So, It sounds like communication is really key across all of these different venues that you're talking about in order to have a good relationship. Yeah, and I would add um, non-critical communication. Good point, yeah. Great, yeah, and if people can just communicate upfront and be non-critical ahead of time, then it would save them the headache and the heartache and, you know, having to go to therapy to discuss things. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I also think, you know, the other thing that goes on sometimes in infidelity I've seen is there's this real life um, shifting mm-hmm. event. So sometimes people say, have said to me, you know, my best friend died oh. from cancer. And in that moment I thought, ah, I, I have to go and get what I need because I've been suffering and throwing myself, you know, into withholding and hiding for so long. I'm going to go out now and get what I want because I've been so repressed and so resentful. Oh, okay. uh, and life is short. Look at my friend just died, you know, right. or a parent, uh, you know, passing on or parents splitting up. Right. Mm-hmm. They're like life changing events uh, that you know, and COVID-19, by the way, where people were actually faced with, you know, potential sickness and sometimes death, right? So they started questioning, you know, it's an existential crisis. It wasn't just a pandemic about what do I really want in life? And what have I sort of been missing out on and not giving myself permission to ask for? Oh, great. So if infidelity does occur, and as you said, there could be so many different perceptions of what's infidelity, when should a person generally try to make it work? When should they stay or when should they? It's an excellent question. And actually, uh, one of my... or broken their sexual boundaries and Mm. it's called reclaiming oneself after partner infidelity and we did a whole interview with each other a discussion about Mm. a lot of myths and one of these myths is well if your partner has cheated Mm. it's over and if you stay with that person you're a loser like I'm I'm, I'm being kind of hyperbolic here but there is this sort of cultural belief that if you stay with someone who has crossed those boundaries then you yourself should be embarrassed for yourself. So a lot of people feel really like they can't, and they can't tell people because they're afraid that if they decide to stay, they will be judged forevermore. They might lose their friendships, you know? So um, I I think first of all, to start with a lot of couples stay together after a sexual boundary has been breached. Why? Because there's enough there that they want to, uh, preserve, uh, maybe there are children involved. Uh, Mm -hmm. and also they want, they want to feel intimate again. For many of them, they broached it. They breached the boundary because 
uh, they weren't getting something from someone else. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, or they were working out something internally that may have been more related to their history than with their partner that they had never actually uh, addressed before, uh, including trauma and sexual trauma. So I think that we always ask people, are you ready to create a new marriage with oh, new okay. discussion points that you didn't yeah. have before? How are you going to repair the trust? And I, I would say that if you have one partner who is in kind of denial or uh, isn't you know, feeling much remorse about their behavior, I think that might be a telltale flag that right. work that is needed because there's a lot of work involved mm -hmm. to repair the marriage. Um, it might not happen because you need two very committed partners. You can be committed and ambivalent, mm -hmm. but committed you know, to do the work and not continually making excuses for themselves. And, you know, the other part of it that we see is sometimes the infidelity has to do with one person's hypersexual or out of control sexual behavior. So their repeated casual, you know, sexual uh, hookups that have been go going on for years. Uh, and the person is, feels out of control from their experience. And uh, they may even have other addictive patterns that, you know, maybe a lot of times, like sometimes maybe people stop drinking alcohol and binging and then they they increase these sexual behaviors, you know? So that's actually, you know, um, the other group that I run uh, virtually is a coaching group for men who have out of control sexual behavior, who want to create new sexual health plans for themselves and need that support to uh, sort of fortify um, their sexual health plans uh, based on their values and their priorities. Yeah. So I, I think that there are so many different avenues that mm -hmm. people go down. I always say, you know, having some group to support you as you're going through this very tumultuous and heart-wrenching experience mm -hmm. um, is just helpful, uh, scaffolding. Uh, to figure out kind of where you're going down the road and what you eventually want for yourself. Yeah. Wow. Regarding people who have out of control sexual behavior, how does that impact their partners if they're in a relationship? Like you said, they may choose to be um, to cheat or to, you know to seek things elsewhere. Are there any other impacts that could happen on the relationship? Right. Well, first of all, the broken trust, right? It's yeah. sort of the ground we walk on. Mm. And what most people come in feeling is like a bomb went off and the, the ground upon which they're standing is totally like shocked. So, you know, that's a huge impact. Uh, but sexual health includes STIs. And many times I find, you know, people aren't asking the question of, well, did you use a condom? Oh, wow. What precautions did you take? Right. What risks did you take? Mm. Uh, how is that, you know, did you get yourself tested in between these behaviors? Uh, and so part of being a certified sex therapist is also kind of being a sex educator with a hat on, you know, at times yeah. to explore and inform people of the precautions they need to take for themselves. So go get tested, right? Yeah. And sometimes partners feel like, so devastated by an STI they got because of their partner's um, infidelity uh, that they just withdraw sexually for a very long time. 
because oh. their whole, not only emotionally, psychologically, they've mm -hmm. been impacted and, um, you know, the trauma of that, but their body has also been impa impacted, right? There, there, there have been also situations in which the partner who, you know, has the compulsive behavior has impregnated somebody else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be a, a full gamut of things that could happen. Yeah. Wow. Um, your practice, you mentioned that you see both heterosexual and LGBTQ relationships. Mm -hmm. Are there any differences between these two types of relationships? You know, love is love. Do the do people in both cohorts endure the same types of struggles, or that, or are there actually differences that you find? You know, I, I would say they both they 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 all have the same sort of struggles. Um, but I would add this: that many um, gay male couples. Um, mm -hmm have already negotiated and had the conversations around what infidelity is. And some of them are more open in terms of bringing a third party in. Mm. Now, not to say that, you know, with, you know, consensually non-monogamous or ethically non-monogamous couples, uh, there isn't room for cheating or infidelity. Uh, mm -hmm. There is, but I find that because their culture, um, kind of supports that possibility and has for longer than in the heterosexual community. I think those conversations and those uh, and rules around that behavior, uh, for instance, like, you know, we will only, you know, play together with a third partner. You know, we're not going to do that individually or uh, you do your thing, I'll do mine, but we won't have anyone in our home. Right, mm. that we share with one another. Uh, so all those things I think are a little bit different, I would say. Again, it's, it sounds like communication is key with everything. Right. right? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, so here's the million dollar question. Uh, based on your research and experience working with couples, what's the best piece or pieces of advice that you can give people to help them have the most fulfilling, lasting, happy relationship with their partner? I would say two main things. Great. First, the first is know yourself. Mm. Really give your sign, yourself the time to mm. understand all the parts of you, even the dark parts of you that you may not like. Yeah. Um, and do it in an embodied way. Because a lot of times, some of the parts of ourselves that we're not as um, in touch with are mm. in our bodies. Mm. So get to know yourself. And then communicate with the partner because then they're knowing all sides of you, the light mm -hmm. sides and the ones that you might find a little bit darker. And they know, and you know, what each of you is sort of set up for going forward. You're always going to have some arguments. I always say that, you know, couples have like themes of their arguments that keep kind of having variations. It's sort of like, choreography you know it's there's the theme and the variation and it keeps coming back right. um, know it going forward mm -hmm. then you can start to you know work on strategies on when we get into that rough place how are we going to get out mm -hmm. right. was there another one or that was the combination correct the combination it's knowing yourself and then knowing how to communicate okay. and, and that's kind of you know not kind of that's why I created this term sex esteem 
Because mm. if you know yourself and you feel like you can be compassionate and give yourself grace around your interests and then be able to talk to your partner about it, you're in a much better situation going forward. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. So as someone specializing in relationship issues, do you have any other advice or parting words that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would just say, do your research. You know, really give yourself, I, I mean, I created sex esteem, you know, my sex esteem program as an adult sex ed and relationship ed for adults, because I think we as adults did not, you know, as children did not get as much education. And so go out there, some great resources out there about what real sex should look like, or be like, or feel like. Um, learn how to ask questions instead of um, making commands, right? Be curious about your partner and yourself mm. because we're growing. We need to keep growing. We're just growing people, organisms. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. For our listeners, we're going to link up um, in our transcription with a lot of uh, series websites um, and different parts of our website. So feel free to check that out. And uh, thank you again, Sari, and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This was great.